Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today is someone I wish we could clone. He's a board-certified physician in emergency medicine with more than 30 years hospital and private medicine experience. His practice has cared for clients in over 150 countries and locations to date, ranging from the mountains of Patagonia to ships in the Labrador Sea. A U.S. Navy officer, he served as a faculty member of the Emergency Medicine Residency Training Program and provided emergency medical support for NATO troops during the amphibious operations at the Arctic Circle. That was quite a photo op. Providing care in difficult and remote locations became the impetus for his founding Black Bag Emergency Medicine, a private medical consultancy providing individuals and families with immediate care guidance, regardless of their location in the world. He has one of the most peaceful dispositions I know, so it's no surprise that he helps people have peace of mind. I am thrilled to introduce my friend, the inspiring Dr. Chris Sidford. Chris, grateful you're carving out time to join me. Welcome. Good morning, Molly. It's uh, it's great to join you. Um, I have to say, and I think most of people are listening, that you're one of the more inspiring people I've been able to meet since opening this business. So thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate your kind words and back at you, just barely trying to keep up with the likes of you. Um, and really, I have a feeling great pressure because it's on me to manage our time because there's just so much I'm keen for listeners to hear from you. You've been so helpful to me personally around COVID, you know, and particularly as people seem to be traveling a lot, we want to spend some time there. And your current work is also fascinating, not the conventional physician's career path, uh, but let's start at the beginning, please. And I appreciate you sharing what growing up was like for you. Well, thanks. Um, you know, I grew up a long time ago. Let's go. That, let's start with that one. But I grew up with uh, five brothers, um, and we were actually in a in a divorced family where all five of us, the first five, were all under the age of five, and sort of living in Indianapolis. And then we moved to the East Coast, and my mom met a great, uh, a great man who became our father. But we grew up in a very um, energetic time where kids were sort of said, hey, go outside and play. And we, we took it seriously and ran and jumped and wrestled and pushed and fought. And uh, in a weird way, I think it sort of got me started somewhere down the ER path because we were in the emergency room, I think, every week, every weekend in, in, in the summer. And um, it's funny, I, I, I was, you know, people have asked, how did you get into this career and so on? And I can remember very distinctly uh, the, the red sign with white letters that said authorized people only on the outside of the ER door. And, I, and I, it didn't occur to me until I was giving a, a presentation to a wealth group in New York City a few years ago that that was kind of a big challenge to me. I was trying to figure out what is it, what's on the other side of that door that's slightly terrifying and what does it take or what would it take to be the person on the other side of that door with the answers? 
And weirdly, I can't say it was a direct story. I wasn't one of those ones that grew up and said, oh, I want to be a doctor from age five. But I certainly started to think about it in my teenage years. And it was definitely, there was something about how do you combine a, a sort of natural desire to help people with a sort of intellectual curiosity in, in science and then in health. And this is kind of what got me started down that road. So, uh, so that was sort of the, the beginning start. So talk to me about, so six boys and your mom, who's like superstar, how, how did she manage all that energy? You know, I, well, I mean, the good news is it, it was just a different time. I mean, you really, you know, today's kids and our, my kids too grow up in such a controlled existence of play dates and so on. And we were the, honestly, you know, here's a bike, go out and find something to do. And you did. And most of the neighborhood kids did. And, and you know, looking back on it, I, I would be terrified if, if I had my kids were out doing that now, I would be just some of the places. I mean, we literally used to climb inside old factories and across these pipes that were, you know, hundred feet up in the air, but it, it didn't seem unnormal. It just seemed what we did then. So, so I, uh, you know, we just, unfortunately, if we, if we look back, I think uh, if we tallied one of my brothers broke my arm, I think I broke three of my brothers or chipped three of my brother's teeth. One of them was pushing him down the stairs in church you know, we just we just were active kids, at which was I think great fun. Um, I think there's a book called you know you know raising boys dangerously, and I think there's a benefit to it. But boy, I uh, now I I mean you know with three kids, I I can't imagine what it was like at that kind of age with those youngsters. Wow. So did you all get along close in age, and where are you in the birth order? So we we mostly got along until we didn't. We, I would say we, we, we played hard and occasionally fought. And then there was always sort of a, you know, just sort of a natural disagreement, sports or whichever, or I don't know. Um, I think young boys, you just, you want to wrestle, you want to push each other. So I think that was sort of part of it, but wasn't, it wasn't a, a mean by any means. It was actually kind of a joyful. We did lots of things together. But we just we just were very active. Uh, I'm I'm in the middle. I have an identical twin brother, and um, you know we we tagged around a lot together. And we we took us a while to figure out we could actually team up to defend ourselves in the house. But uh, but it was still it was a, it was actually I would say a very joyful um, childhood. That sounds bad. Did the Sidbirds like field a whole sports team? We're like we're here. We're half the team. You know we we were all different. Sports, but we were certainly known for that. In fact, you know, in the high school and so on, I mean, my twin brother and I were known because you're twins. I mean, nobody really knew who you were, but everybody just sort of called us Sid. And so you were, you were, you were known for that reason alone. And we certainly, I mean, I think also at that time, there were a lot of families that had lots of kids. So we weren't that unusual. Lots of boys was a bit unusual. Yeah, fantastic. So were you natural at school? Were you getting press pressure to be studious? You know, um, that's funny. I, not at all. I mean, I think, you know, there was always the, you know, get to school, get to sports. We, we were encouraged, we weren't pushed, but we were encouraged to be in lots of activities. So try out a new team. I mean, soccer literally in high school was a new sport. You know, we tried different things and we were, 
encouraged to do well. I don't think there was ever that much pressure to be, you know, at the top of the class or anything, which is fortunate because we probably wouldn't have been, but, but no, it was, it was, um, I, I think what my parents were really good at was getting us what we needed, not necessarily what we wanted. Mm, wise words. Uh, so how did the college thing happen? Did all the boys go to college? Um, so we all, we, there were actually four of us in college at one time. Mm. And, and I, can, I can remember very clearly uh, making a decision. My brother and I both got into the same colleges, my twin brother. And I remember making a conscious decision saying, we, we can't go to the same place. If we go to the same place, we'll be the same one person. We'll both develop as one person because we were, we were sort of a combination of personalities when we were together, one being a little bit more outgoing, one being a little more conservative. And it became very clear to me that I needed to go to, to a school by myself and do something on my own, which looking back turned out really well, um, but, but it, was a, it, was a, it was a challenging decision. Yeah, I can imagine. So how did you choose where to go? So my brother and I both got into St. Lawrence and Middlebury, and uh, there were a couple different reasons about when to go and so on. But I also got offered a, a very nice scholarship from St. Lawrence, and it, it seemed to be um, a more natural fit. So I went to St. Lawrence, and my twin brother went to Middlebury. Wow. And so Which is strange, because when we graduated, I actually went to their ceremony and graduated with him. Um, because it, the graduation days were the exact same day and time. So we ended up going to different schools, but walked up together at graduation. Oh, how nice. That's fantastic. So the, the, the college part, anything particular you want to share? Because I'm curious how the medical school and came about. So I, I, my, my father and my twin brother were both, my father was an architect. My twin brother was interested in architecture. I was interested in architecture. And I was also interested in, in medicine and you know, as a freshman or sophomore in college, you know, how do you make a decision like that? Um, I started working um, nights in an emergency room just to sort of see if that fit. And there definitely was a sort of um, an attraction to the, to the thrill of it, to the, to the fast pace, the excitement and so on. But I can remember very clearly sitting in a, in a lecture at uh, St. Lawrence and it was from a, a, a military recruiter. And I don't know why it was part of the political, politics course I was taking, but one of the recruiters picked me out of the audience and said, what would it take for you to join the military? And the military was not thought well of back then. And, and I said, oh, there's, there's nothing. There's no way you'll ever get me in the military, which, which is kind of strange because four or five years later, when I, when I did get into medical school and was trying to figure out a way to pay, because I certainly did not want my parents to have anything to do with paying for med school when they, they had done everything they could to get us all through college. And uh, the, the Navy had a scholarship program that uh, was, was hard to get into, but I applied and, and won a scholarship, which was basically ROTC for medical school. So it, it, turned, out, it turned out really well, but it's funny how that, those kind of bold statements come back to haunt you when you're in college. That is very ironic that you, you were actually picked out and you're like, no way. Um, what, what was it like to be in, and how did it work? Did you go into school and how did you serve? So I, I actually took a year off, worked in a burn unit for a year, again, trying to sort of figure out my path to med school and save some money. And um, it became very clear there's no way I could afford it, although the tuition then wouldn't even have covered daycare these days. But 
I had a I had an acceptance, and you could apply to a scholarship to one of the three Navy, Army, Air Force, and the Navy seemed to have the nicest places to to do your work because they were somewhere near the ocean, or presumably, turns out that didn't always work out either. And I went to and to the recruiting process and applied and won a scholarship and and got my first lesson in in the reality of, of programs like that because the recruiting the recruiter I met with had all these questions about, you know, where do you want to go? Where do you station and so on? And I think absolutely every answer he gave was a complete total lie. You know, you'll never have to go to sea if you don't want to. You get to pick where you go. Don't worry about being with the Marines. Again. It's just one of those lessons you learn to go, you know, careful what they're offering you because it's not for free. And it was it was a great, it was a great opportunity because they, they paid for medical school and I got to travel around the world and I got to meet some great people. But, you know, you're also in a, in a military unit that is also preparing for or capable of, of rendering medical care during, during a wartime situation. So, you know, when you think you may be going to visit your brothers to go skiing, you actually get sent to the Arctic Circle to help support NATO. So there's just a, you know, it's a different, it's a different world with a sort of wake up call. Well, you, you have, and I, in that world, you have to be go with the flow, but you have a very natural go with the flow. So just talk about the hearing that you're going to the Arctic and, and what that was like. Well, it, it's, so it started with, you're going to be, you have to go to, I think it was Northern Wisconsin. You have to go to winter training in a 1940s leftover base with the Marines who were a very different crop. There were some wonderful people, but it's a very, you know, don't think, just do attitude. And that's kind of hard to do as a military, as a medical person. You you, you won't need to have your own autonomy and your decision-making. So it was, it was a wake-up call. And then they said, you know, uh, NATO is doing war exercises in the Arctic Circle, and we'd like you to go set up a little trauma center in a, in a guard shack north of the Arctic Circle. And if something happens to any of these leaders of NATO, we'd like you to take care of it. Which, you know, I just finished, uh, at that point, I just finished my residency in Boston City. So I, you know, I thought I was pretty capable and I thought, you know, let me, we'll do drills and so on. I had the quorum and all the supplies. And I think it was one of the first introductions to sort of the, the medicine on the road or travel medicine is that for all our preparations, nothing we prepared for had anything to do with what came our way but I would say that the preparations helped in sort of being prepared for anything. And the first one was weirdly um, Greenpeace decided to, to come up and, and streak through the landing as a protest. So I had not anticipated that somebody would voluntarily jump into the freezing ocean and get in the way uh, with no clothing. So that was my first surprise. And then the second, which was considerably more serious is that we, the, the half tracks that came ashore cut all our communication lines. And it was, it was quite a while ago, so it was pre-cell phone. And that, in a way, is a, is, a, is a really serious disaster when you have no ways of communicating with anybody, medically speaking, evacuation, so on. So, again, it was sort of an uh, interesting wake-up for the things that, you, that might come your way, no matter how well you're prepared. Wow. When you think about being in the military and, and serving, Chris, what, uh, what did you learn from that part of your, your experience? Well, it was, it's just, a, you know, you, any kind of healthcare, no matter where you are, is some test of flexibility. What do you know? What do you think should happen? And then what really can happen? 
And the military was, was no different. It was just a different series of challenges, a different Rubik's cruise or cube, if you will. You know, now you're, I mean, I'm literally, I think it was in Sicily in an underground nuclear chemical and biological proof hospital with 20 feet of concrete above us. So you have to practice a remote medicine, but you have to be capable of making decisions about where patients need to go and who can survive, what kind of transport and what facility should they go to. But you were also challenged by being in a military situation with rank. So some of that was great. There were some of the more impressive people I've ever met. But I think in any healthcare setting or any professional setting, there are people who you come across who probably should not have entered that career. They didn't have what it takes, I think, to be reasonably good at their career. And, and certainly in the military, if you run into that person, you run into that person and now they have rank. And rank can be a very serious condition to, to, to try and deal with when your medical say is secondary to your rank say, regardless of, I mean, they'll tell you when you go in, oh, it's always the medical decision first. Well, it is until it's not. And there are certain times when you would you would come across medical decisions that didn't make sense, or some of them were downright dangerous. And the process to go around the medical chain of command was, was uh, challenging. And, and sometimes it, it took months to get effective change, but there were some real, um, some real interesting sides of what politics and medicine do together. I can only imagine. How, um, how did you grow? I, I, did, were you, were you always like game on? I can do this. Or was it a naivete? Like, Oh, let's go see. Cause it, it just strikes me as you're all of a sudden you think you're doing something and boom, you're really in a whole different situation and curious what you learned about yourself. And if you ever wondered like, can I really do this? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know anybody in medicine. And I would say in most careers that is not challenged by what you're what you think you can do and what other people think you can do. And, and I know in healthcare, I, I think at almost every stage, you wonder if you're, you know, are you smart enough to get into school? Are you smart enough to do well? Are you smart enough to get into a residency? And in the beginning, it's, it's a challenge because you're being, your entire measurement of how good you are is all on paper. And so you know, I certainly met the first challenges of getting into school and, and getting decent grades and so on. But I would say that the, the nice part was, is when you, when you got to meet patients and even, even really sick patients, it made sense. It was an equation that you could understand in terms of now I get why you, why you learn. It made it easier to learn because now you put cases and medical histories together with illnesses and it made it easier to also train or prepare because you could put them to a patient scenario and thought, I'm going to need to know this. I mean, I remember sitting through some of the first traumas I saw at Boston City Hospital, which is Boston's knife and gun club, and thinking, you know, how are you ever going to make those decisions when you're watching these really, really sick patients come through the door? And I started, you know, like most of us started you know, pretending, what would I, what decisions would I make? What would I ask for? What would I do? And you, you know, it's like the, the visualization in sports, you start visualizing, how do you think you would handle this? And how do you learn when you make mistakes or you didn't think of the right answer? But I, I you know, I mean, 
again, I, I don't know people who are who are in healthcare in particular who aren't challenged daily, weekly, or so on. Do you have you learned enough? Do you know enough? Because in many ways, the clinical scenarios that come your way, you may not have the answers regardless. And obviously, some illnesses are not treatable. So it's it's a it's I think it's a constant constant push me, pull me. You're you and I think I can't remember the quote, but I think it was something like feeling intelligent is an arrested state of development. So if you think you're, you know, standing there with all the answers, you probably need to take a better look at where you are. Feeling intelligent is an arrested state of development. I like that one a lot. Uh, Chris, do you have particular mentors who, you know, were very influential in how you thought about medicine or people perhaps you saw you didn't want to be like? You know, the first, there were, I think, um, there were but there were a bunch of different people that if you look back, you, you I mean, honestly, I, I mean, we all grew up in my, at least my generation, we grew up watching MASH and we grew up watching the personalities in MASH who, who dealt with things with humor and with compassion, at least certainly in the early seasons. But I, I think that was kind of an interesting start for a lot of people who went into healthcare in my generation. And then you met people, you know, in your life. And I, I think probably the, the easiest one that I can recall, and there were, there were so many, but the first one was a, was a gentleman named Peter Moyer, who was the director at Boston City Hospital. And Boston City is where I ended up going. It was an inner city. It was one of the first programs. And it was a real challenge and struggle to build a developing residency in emergency medicine. There are a lot of conflicts with other programs like surgery that didn't necessarily agree. And Peter Moyer was one of these very smart, unbelievably compassionate human beings who seemed to walk the line of knowing enough, but he was incredibly humble when he would turn to certain specialists and say, well, I have no idea what to do here. That's what I'm, I'm looking for your help and, and be gracious and humble. And I, I think he was one of those people that um, many of us who went through the training program there would think he was one of many there, but he was one of the first who, who had this great connection with people and medicine in the worst inner city challenges. And he treated everybody with respect, didn't matter, homeless, drug user, it didn't matter. And so he was probably one of my first. Wow. Saint. That person is a sainthood. You know, let's do a segue because I know a little bit more about emergency medicine because I have some friends uh, in it. And I was in awe because of the 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 range with which uh, what you need to know and then the depth and the ongoing training. So could you just brag a little bit about what the emergency certified, board certified emergency medicine folks are capable of, because I was, was, was pretty in awe. Well, emergency medicine came around because in the late, I think it was the late seventies and eighties, what used to happen is the emergency rooms were staffed by whoever was on call. So you could have an internist, you could have the OBGYN doc, you could have a neurosurgeon and they could be the on-call doctor. And they're covering the emergency room and whoever came in, if you had that problem, you were in good shape. But it seemed pretty clear and it's easy to understand that if you are a pediatrician your whole life and a car accident patient comes in, it's going to be beyond what you're comfortable with, what you're trained with, what you know. So the programs came around that, that we need to start putting a program together that covers all the different specialties 
So they created a four-year training program and it covers, you know, you, you spend time in the different, you know, different specialties, internal medicine, trauma care, surgery, um, ophthalmology, basically every single specialty you spend time on and you focus on what do I need to pick up? Because unlike, I would say the, the, the ER programs that you see on TV where they, they rush in and they do every procedure and they do everything and they deliver kids and so on. The reality is most of what you're doing is you're trying to figure out what someone has, figure out what you need to do for them and figure out, is there somebody else that needs to get involved? And if so, when? And the good news is, is and I think probably one of the reasons I picked emergency medicine is you get to do a lot. You get to do a lot of things that are that are broken or damaged that you need to, you can fix and turn around and either start the treatment or finish it and send them home. Things like broken bones and, and suturing lacerations and, and even heart attacks and, and car accidents. You know, these are things that you see on a daily basis. And the other thing you see is that you're, you see them all at the same time. And so one of the things you, I sort of figured out, and certainly I would say colleagues and so is, is that you, you have to be good at a shit show. You have to be able to see this kind of place going haywire and figure your way through who's got what, who needs to get done quickest. And many times it's at the same time and who can you hand patients off to. And, and so it, it's, it's, I think, a, a, a brilliant solution to how do you keep the people in the emergency room trained and staffed so that they can start or treat things um, but unlike the, unlike the shows and so on, there aren't patients, they're not running down and saying, oh, I'd like to deliver a child. Um, delivering a child is one of those things I think scares most ER docs. And there are things that, that ER docs say, look, I, I'll do what I have to do. But if there's a specialist, especially one in the operating room that does this routinely, then we're not, we're not doing this. We want to get this to somebody who can do this, certain, certain procedures and so on. So it's really a, a, um, I think it's a, a, you know, just being capable of handling what's important in each of the fields. And the other one in that part is knowing when to ask for help is huge. Yeah. How uh, you, you seem so calm. I mean, it's just, you're just very unflappable. And how have you done the self-care? Cause I can imagine you could run yourself to the ground now, I don't know, you can, maybe you don't rate yourself very well on self-care, Chris, but I am wondering how you take care of you, because if you don't take care of you, you can't take care of others. Well, self-care is a, is a, is a challenge. It's one of the, it's one of the um, issues that, that people started early. How do, you, how do you address the things that you see? Because the reality is you, you see pretty terrible things on, on almost a daily basis and some days all day long. And how do you be there for someone medically and, and socially and, and psychologically? How do you support and care for them without taking too much of that home? And, you know, I'd like to say there's a great formula. There are certainly ways of trying to make sure you exercise, you spend time with yourself, you, you eat well. But the reality is, is, is some of it is unpreventable. You, you are going to see things that you that you wish you didn't. And after 20 or 30 years of that, um, it, it does, it does accumulate. And so some of it, it's like the, uh, the call to get physicians and so on better hours. So they weren't up and sleep derived. The reality is that, is that sleep deprivation and, and taking care of people is just part of the job. 
it doesn't matter what hours you have. There's certain hours you may not be at your peak and you have to take care of patients regardless. So that is a skill you learn and, and so on. But, but the, the self-care, I, I, I wouldn't give myself a, a great grade. I'd give myself an okay grade because it's just the nature of what, of what you do. And, and when your day is, is, is sometimes really um, pretty awful, there, there just aren't certain things you just, you're just going to take home and there's just not a lot you can do about it. Yeah. My sister and I once chatted that she just said, you know, I wish I had been a doctor because of people who've given her the most comfort at really tough times. It was the doctor. So we're, we're just blessed for, for people like you, you know, before we go on to hear more about the career transition, you know, let's flip the roles and say it skillfully because you have, you do have to deliver bad, tough news regularly. And I know it's never easy, Chris, but perhaps you could share with listeners some of the things that they go through for you and how you handle delivering um, tough news. Well, I mean, um, I think it is, it is one of the, the really important skills. And, and I would say, weirdly, it's also one of the ones when you mentioned mentors, you see people who are really good at it, and then you see people who are really bad at it. And, and the bad ones are so bad at it, you wonder how they got in the career. And so you, you, you figure out early on, one is remember what the person that you're going to talk to is going through. The worst day that you can imagine, and we, you know, as, as loved ones or parents or children or so on, we, we all have our visions of what's the worst day. And so you, you, you have to put yourself somewhat in their place of what they're coming into and what they're going to find out. You want to make sure that you have as much information as you can for the time it is. So if there is a serious event going on in the other room, a resuscitation and so on, and you're trying to give the family an update, you want to be as clear as you can about what's going on. And you want to be, I wouldn't say brutally honest, you want to be very clear and, and but upfront and honest about what is happening. And, and then you also have to give people time. You have to understand that no matter what or how good you say something, if it's the most shocking news they've ever heard or discouraging news or so on, it's going to take them time. So lay it out in your head before you go. Um, the other thing which is kind of, kind of interesting is that the perception in the ER of how much time your doctor spends with you, if you sit down, they perceive it as twice as much as you actually do. So the other thing is, is sit down with somebody and take your time. Don't, I mean, sometimes you have to rush, but make it clear that you have, that you're the, that the reason you're there is because you need to tell them something. And it can be amazing how even in a couple of minutes, how important, get a few of the highlights in, and then if you have to do it, come back. Great, great advice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so Chris, you're, you know, I just imagine you're jetting around the world. I don't know. How did you, you know, have the family thing and the career transition share with us this part of the journey? <laughs> well, the, the family thing, you know, in the emergency room, it, it's, uh, there's really good things about it. You get to, you get to stop and you get to go home and you're not caring for patients in between. The bad news is the hours are pretty, can be pretty um, awkward. They're not a lot in terms of other careers, but certainly you can come home at four in the morning or you can come home at four in the afternoon having been there all night. So you, if you're, if you're going to ha you know, have a family and so on, I, I think it's unfairly burdened for some of my good friends who were women in the program 
who were trying to do the same thing. It was, it was a, it's a, it's just a challenge um, because you're trying to balance, you know, the things that are important on both sides as, as most career people do is trying to balance. So, um, you know, the, you know, we were sort of fortunate that, that our kids um, were around when we had some flexibility in the schedule, they were young at that time. So that certainly helped. Um, and then, you know, I think the other thing is that you're, you get your eyes opened to try and appreciate certain things and ages that, that that's some of the good thing about being in the ER. You do get a reminder of, of taking time to enjoy and, and see, you know, what your kids are doing and listening and so on. So that part was, was a, a strangely good part of the ER. Mm, nice. I, I just, I, I just, it's amazing how you can really juggle. I know everybody out there is juggling, but I just perceive this as like the, you know, elite level of juggling um, and how, you know, so I, I, I get that you, around the world operating and how did you think about, you know, going quite a different direction than uh, perhaps people might think as conventional doctor career path? Well, the, the, you know, the, the reality of getting older um, and I would say even in your forties, thirties and forties, you start to realize that your ability to manage things in a night shift and put up with this grueling schedule and, the things that you see is going to change. It's going to evolve. And there's going to come a point where it might not be in your best interest to keep doing that existence. Not that you can't, but it's also, a, you know, are there, are there other things? And I think what was more happening is that are there other things and possibilities to doing this? So, so I, I, I was introduced to the idea that, that there are telemedicine and other ways to practice or deliver healthcare. And I, I got introduced to the idea and worked for some organizations doing similar things and then found that there were some just amazing connections, some with patients, some we work with you know, former military types, Secret Service, SAS types, and they're incredible professionals. And so it was a surprising discovery in that, you know, what else is out there is that there is a very different connection in the business world and the philanthropic and the security world that has a real attraction. There's a, a great connection. And that was uh, sort of drew me into it. And then the, again, it's just sort of got what kind of, what kind of things are you going to be challenged with? And can you anticipate what they might be? And, you know, like you and I've talked about, can you find some ways of providing most importantly information and peace of mind? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's so I just think it's so great for people who have a chance to work with you because medicine, you know, when you need it and it's, it's really hard to know who to trust and uh, to be able to have someone who's tracking you all over the world, um, maybe without, you know, sharing anything you're not supposed to share, just share with folks, maybe a situation where you help folks, um, you know, not to dramatize it, but, you know, I've heard some of these, it's pretty amazing what you have been able to orchestrate to really help people, you know, when they really didn't, did not expect to be uh, in tough situations. Well, there's a, there's a, I mean, a couple of cases, both of which the, the families have given me permission. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. One was uh, a gentleman who was vacationing with his family in Aruba and he, um, you know, was, didn't make it to the beach. He actually had a heart attack. So he was, he survived the heart attack. He was in the, the local hospital in Aruba and 
it wasn't a client. It was actually uh, somebody who'd heard me speak at a financial event in Boston. And they called on a Sunday morning and said, we're in Aruba. They don't have any kind of advanced cardiac care. We can't get off the island because he's not cleared to fly. What can you do? And so through a series of fortunate events in terms of having the availability and so on, we were able to get him a medical jet, a doc and a nurse and pick him up uh, before in that afternoon. And he was actually flown back to the Cleveland Clinic in Fort Lauderdale before sundown. And I say fortunate because sometimes when those kind of arrangements come up, there isn't always a jet available. There isn't always a, a, a team available as well, but this time it worked out really well. And he was, he literally got to the cardiac catheterization, which is where they go and they, they put a catheter in the blood vessels around the heart and see what kind of problems you're having. And he had a, a full cardiac arrest there. And fortunately, as, as you know, which is the perfect place if you're going to have one, it's a perfect place right in front of the cardiologist and all. they resuscitated him. He survived. And he's been back there uh, every, every summer or every winter he goes back and I get a, you know, a, a, a nice note. And, and strangely, I was, I was giving an event, uh, a presentation in New York, and I started the presentation and the guy in the back stands up and yells out, you know, you saved my father. And it was the son of the gentleman I just mentioned. So we, you know, it was a lot of different circumstances that came together, fortunately. And um, the second, the second case that sort of is, you know, how do you, how do you give somebody advice and so on that's of some use? And I think we all have family members that are, you know, they may be in whatever kind of subspecialty, it can be anything, it can be law, it can be architecture, it can be medicine, it can be school teacher. You know, there are people that have different um, things and ways to help you. And there was a, a gentleman, I was giving a, a, another presentation for the Family Wealth Alliance on COVID. And, a, and somebody I had met in Chicago years ago had listened to the presentation. And then in the presentation, I tell people that I think for COVID, it's a really smart investment to get a, a, a blood oxygen saturation monitor, which is a little thing they clip on your finger and they tells you your heart rate and how much uh, oxygen is saturating your blood. And it's a very useful tool. And this is somebody who had listened to the presentation and said, you know, can, can I get one of those because I'm, I'm having a little trouble breathing and my orthopedic surgeon thinks that I have COVID. And it was the, the certainly one of the more serious peaks in, in COVID. And so we, I just started a little conversation with that. Well, that's kind of unusual. Why, why does he think your breathing is just from COVID and so on? And as it turns out, he said, well, you know, I just had my knee replaced uh, a week ago. And a knee replacement is one of the big risks for having uh, blood clots in your legs and then blood clots that go to your lungs. And so I, you know, we, a couple more sentences and it became very clear that this was pretty serious. And I said, look, you've got to hang up the phone and go to the emergency room. And sure enough, he'd had a number of large blood clots and was admitted to the hospital and so on. So it was, uh, you know, just happenstance that he was listening and so on. So some of the things we do. Oh my goodness. This is like, oh my God. I'm just like holding my breath, saving people's lives. It's really, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. Um, bringing up COVID, I, I, you know, I, I know you talk about this a lot, um, but, you know, we're all trying to figure out what's coming at us and, and do what's smart for ourselves and our family. So perhaps, you know, people are starting to travel um, a little primer on how. Folks, uh, think about it, uh, precautions, um, would welcome any thoughts on COVID. Um, well, it's, it's funny. I, I, I literally had a, a three or four phone calls this morning from Europe about patients who have COVID issues, who are fully vaccinated and got sick. And now they're trying to figure out, well, how do I get out of here and what do I do and so on? So 
I mean, a couple of things that I, I try to make sure that people start with is that there was a very good infectious disease doctor in Minnesota, and he likes to consider that the, the full vaccination series is really three, not the first two and a booster. So he would say, make sure you got the first three shots. And if you get the fourth, that really would be considered the booster, like, like many vaccinations we have as children and so on. So first is, is please, please get the vaccine. It, it, it is still very effective in terms of preventing death, but we know from the rising numbers and so on of COVID right now is among equally among the unvaccinated and the vaccinated because your immunity does wane. It does drop off as you get further and further from your last shot. So um, don't underestimate the power of that last of another vaccine if you're, if you're eligible to get the vaccination. Um, I would, I would sort of use New York, and you and I have talked about this as an example. I, I do think we pulled the mask mandate off too quickly. I think that uh, I'll use New York as an example, that there was a risky time before vaccinations to consider eating indoors. But once vaccinations were mandated and checked at indoor venues like you know small restaurants and so on, I think it was safe then to consider and now get on with our loves about eating indoors. But I think pulling the mask mandate off was a bit of a mistake because I think it's misleading to tell people that we're done. We are in a much better state than we've ever been, but we're not done with this by any means. And unfortunately, there are some people who've become incredibly sick and even died who are fully vaccinated. So I would caution people that still bring your masks. I would tell them that bring, get an N95 mask. Uh, 3M is my favorite. They make an N95 mask that is NIOSH and it's N-I-O-S-H. That means the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health verifies the validity of any mask. So if you're gonna buy any mask, see if that NIOSH is on the, on the, on the mask itself to verify that it's a legitimate mask. And you know, there are places you don't need to go yet in terms of risk. You know, if you're gonna be going to your college kids um, reunion or their celebration for graduation, it's probably best if you're not of their age group to, to not be in the big large gatherings. Um, but is it time to travel? It certainly is. Um, it is. It is a moving target in terms of understanding which, which precautions, which requirements are going to be for any country. There's a website called IATA, the International Association of Transportation, that, that has a very nice demonstration of what country requires what in terms of pre- um, during travel or even returning requirements for you to go. And keep in mind, if you're going to travel, that what happens if you do? And unfortunately, I've heard of different cases, even some cases where I think very, um, very nice five-star hotels have falsified results to keep uh, clients there for a full two weeks. So bring extra medications, anticipate what happens if you do travel. And if, you, if you're going to go is it, is it reasonable to find places that have less people or outdoor eating? I think that's the appropriate step. You know, indoor large venues, I think it's still a bit, a little bit premature until we get a sense of where this variant is. And unfortunately there are more variants down the road. Um, and I would, you know, keep in mind that people think, oh, well, it's just a little cough. Most, most of this current uh, variant is not serious. That's true. The overwhelming majority, it's not a very serious. But unfortunately, the more we learn about long COVID in that people who have somewhat debilitating symptoms, somewhere between a, you know, one in four to one in five has some pretty serious symptoms, 
even if they had a mild case. So just to sort of keep a healthy respect for the illness, it's not done. Um, you can travel, bring extra medications, bring a mask. Um, I think that it's, it's time. It's just, again, be smart about it. Yeah, that's great caution and having respect for the illness. I like the way you put that. Um, would, you know, I, I am curious, um, which is not to have Chris save, you know, the state of the healthcare system in the U.S., but I, you know, sitting where you sit with, you know, so many decades of experience, uh, I have had doctor friends say, you know, it's a disease care system because there's more money in disease. We're not really about the healthcare part of it. You know, what uh, made you czar for the day, Chris? What changes do you think would be constructive in helping us deliver, you know, more cost efficient, more effective, more accessible um, healthcare system? <laughs> well, that's an easy question. <laughs> I have all the answers for that. Um, you know, the, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, I would consider healthcare a right that, that not only is it a right that we should have it, but that it's a smart decision that we should have, um, you know, preventive care is not only, um, I think the kind thing to do, it's also the smart thing as, as a population, how do we lessen the impact that healthcare has on us? Translating that to a, a model that, that we have sort of um, blended with a financial reward system is a, re, is a real challenge. Um, I, I don't have an easy answer. I, I do think that the money equation and even the insurance equation has made this really complicated. Um, I, I, I think that the, the issue of requiring everybody to have insurance, which I think was a smart idea to make everyone required to have something, is, is missing the point of that everyone who has insurance does not mean everybody has health care. And I don't think, I think everybody who has health insurance right now understands how difficult it can be to get whatever coverage you think you have or, or should have. So how do, we, how do we have incredibly profitable aspects? I mean, whether you want to say insurance or pharmaceuticals or procedure oriented or so on, how do we mix that in delivering care to everyone it is, is the challenge. Um, I think it was certainly in, in certain areas I've been into. And I mean, the military is, is obviously mandatory healthcare and there was a certain convenience, but I think I, um, my experiences with the Canadian healthcare and so on, that there's a, the challenge is when you have, when you take the money incentive out, you also take out some of the drive to either improve or excel. So, you know, I've only stated what some of the obvious problems are in terms of the answers. I don't know how we get back to rewarding a preventive health initiative when it's not very profitable, even though down the road, it's very, it makes great sense. But I, I, I can't say I have a, a immediate answer. You know, I, I know in, in certain areas, um, certain places I practice where they had a mandatory Medicaid to cover the insurance for those who couldn't have it. And then Medicare and then private insurance seemed to be a, a nice fit. But I don't know how we get back to that system because we seem to be sort of backing into different options. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. I appreciate the thoughts, you know, the idea of rewarding the preventative health aspects, rewarding the wellness. And, you know, a money incentive that's, you know, doesn't corrupt and you know, kind of take people down the wrong path. It's tough, but it's, um, it, you know, it, it really pains me, you know, to see some of the gaps in, 
in the healthcare and, uh, you know, even more grateful for people like you to, um, to help us out. But it's a, it's a really, you know, I do think of it as a really systemic opportunity. And I think with the right transparency and, you know, intention to get there, we, we could, you know, make it better. So um, I want to leave folks with a sense of hope on that. Um, Chris, let's, um, let's do a little reflection here. Assuming you are where you, you're doing now, you're cranking on all cylinders, do you have a particular regret or do-over that you'd share? Uh, you know, that I, I, I would say, and, and I, I think for people at, at, any, at any stage of their life, I'm surprised at certain times that you have your own intuition you have your own idea about something that you think is sort of a random thought, but actually might actually be a, a pretty terrific idea. And it goes along, you know, the Ted Lasso quote of, you know, being curious about things. I, I, I wish at certain times I would have been more curious and followed some of the more instincts. And then I, I don't know anybody, but I would certainly wish that there were certain times that you would have slowed down and enjoyed where you were. And I remember being in med school, one of the ways we, we would go back and sit on Friday afternoons was always the medical school uh, interviews in the admissions office. And so sometimes on Friday afternoons, we'd go meet with the students who were, who were coming in, trying to get in med school because we forgot how hard it had been to get into school and what a big deal it was because we were so busy looking at the next step or the next internship or the next residency. So I, I, I certainly wish there was a you know, appreciation for where we were without so much concern, where I was about so much concern, where I was going. But I can't say I've completely solved that one yet, but I think that's probably my favorite. Fantastic. I love it. You've done a lot in your career and I'm sure you've had many proud moments, but one in particular. Hmm. You know, there, there are certainly, there are just certain interventions you've had um, with patients and some of them are obvious ones you see, but some of them you forget about, or you never know. And I remember I was on the way to the cafeteria at a hospital I worked at. And, you know, sometimes you think you don't have much impact maybe that you think, but I remember, um, I remember family turned to me in the elevator and said, oh yeah, you're the guy who saved my dad's life. And I thought, I don't need, I don't even remember who you are. And they said, yeah, yeah, you were, there was a, he came in, there was a resident who came to see your dad. And he said, well, you're all set. This, we don't think much of your chest pain. You're going home. And they said, and then you came in and said, no, sorry, that's a worrisome story. We're going to admit you and get worked up and turned out he, he had actually had a heart, he had a heart attack and, and a cardiac arrest and survived, but it was just this strange, he did great, but it was this weird you know, one of those days when you don't think you're doing that much and then somebody says, oh, well, hey, by the way. So as there's, you know, fortunately, uh, a bunch of those nice moments. That is nice. Uh, what is personally for you the most fulfilling thing about what you do? I would, ha I would have to be, I would have to say that the, the peace of mind is the sort of central theme. Sometimes it's information, sometimes it's listening, sometimes it's actual real treatment or intervention. But there is there is something to, you know, we all have things that that, and particularly as a parent, things that terrify you and, and 
you know, this is one I'll, 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 I remember a, a, a young mom who's they were worried that their their two year old had taken a bunch of Tylenol. And so the mom's terrified. And, you know, I did nothing except measure a Tylenol level, which proved that he actually didn't get any of the medications. So there wasn't going to be any harm. And I'll never forget the, the look on her face and the relief of, I didn't do anything. I just, I mean, I got a blood test, but, you know, trying to find something for somebody who's in a, in a tough spot is just, uh, you know, that's, that's the key. That's amazing. That is amazing. Chris, you are normally at a hundred miles an hour. So I really appreciate that you slowed down um, and, and spent time with us. And I'm curious, what was it like for you to take a step back and share your life journey with us? You know, I think it, it's actually, you know, I, I like talking about certain things, um, but I think like most of us, I'm not that crazy about talking about myself. Um, I, I love sharing some of the things, and I, I knew you would you'd get into this, <laughs> but I think the world of you, so I'm, I'm, I, I love talking to you. So, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, that, that part is you, you guard many layers. We all do. So, you know, even, even letting in a few, yeah, that's always a challenge, but, but great to talk to you. Well, I appreciate your going there and uh, want to encourage all listeners, you know, we've got parts of our stories that can be very, um, you know, informing and illuminating and inspiring. You're all those things, my friend. And I appreciate uh, you more than you could know. Your service to our country, to all the patients, clients, friends, uh, fortunate to be in your uh, sphere. You know, I, you have been a really comforting source of information, reason, and care for sure. Uh, so, Chris, I'm really grateful for you. And gosh, boy, you're way more part of the solution than most of us. So, you know, you know, I'm here cheering for you. And if I can be helpful at all, please don't uh, hesitate to ask. Uh, my pleasure, Molly. It's been great. Um, you know, like I said, getting to meet people like you and so on. I've been one of the great surprises in, in terms of running a business and who I've gotten to meet. So thank you very much. Oh, we look forward to seeing you very, very soon. You take good care. Thanks, Molly. You too. Oh, my thought for the week, and it's a favorite quote of Chris's, take your job seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. And that is a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Chris's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? 
please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 